Welcome to Season of the Bitch, the leftist podcast that loves and treasures trans kids. Today we have Laura, Zoe, Kellen, and Jules. And today we are talking about the latest attacks on queer and trans rights in the good old U.S. of A. And once again, we encourage everyone to break some laws because, as we know, many laws do not only sustain the wealthy, but they also reinforce a white supremacist heteropatriarchy. But the law that um, says that if you have a crush on me, you have to tell me is a real law and it's a good one. Wow. So true. It's good to know. That's the only good law. Helen, yeah. and I have a crush on you. Oh, my God. Thank you so much. I've been waiting to hear you say that for almost five years. Wow. You're welcome. I, I, I couldn't hide my feelings any longer. Yeah, and it would have been illegal for you to do so. Exactly. So. <laughs> it really would. Um, I also wanted to mention up front why any attacks on um, gender and sexuality are feminist issues at large, because uh, apparently I've heard that people question this doesn't make sense to me, but um, (laughs) I'm also assuming the majority of our listeners already know these things, but I also think it's good to have talking points. So if you're arguing with the people in your lives who don't agree here are some great talking points for you. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think it's important to talk about the concept of TERFs, which as I'm assuming you all know, stands for trans-exclusionary radical feminists. My issue with this term is that that's not feminism, in fact. Um, many would say, I would say, and I'm I, an expert. I would also <laughs> say, you are, a, you are an expert in feminism, absolutely. Master of gender, even. <laughs> yes. It, it's so funny because that reminded me in a class I took. I think this is my first semester of grad school, the first like class you have to take to get a master's in gender studies. And someone in the class was like, Have you all heard of TERFs? And I was like, <laughs> That was an offensive question. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, but yeah, so Terps, anyway. you heard of them? <laughs> have you heard of them? Um, and then this is like during Zoom classes, it's like the whole chat was just like, fuck turfs, fuck turfs, fuck turfs, um, uh-huh. which is fun. But so my <laughs> issue with the term is that that's not feminism. It's actually just the, the TE part, trans exclusionary, also known as transphobes. And I really think we should just call them that and stop honoring the fact that they think they're feminists. <laughs> big, big mood. Um, so All, that's my everyone raise your hand feminism. if you want to create that law now. <laughs> okay consensus Con- yeah. consensus <laughs> yes we have two uh, good laws now yes. the dictatorship of the season of the bitch yes. um has voted into law so you're welcome exactly <laughs> but i think looking historically at feminist movements there are many themes that also directly relate to the attacks on queer and trans rights feminists have been concerned with the policing of women's bodies for for decades. And so it's really not a stretch to see how feminists should all agree that, in fact, no person's body should be policed based on any gender identity. And any policy that aims to police bodies, particularly based on gender, should be seen in light of this as really an affront to all people of marginalized genders. I think another prime example of this is how feminists fought against the idea of like quote unquote ideal womanhood to have a more expansive view of gender and gender norms as it related to cis women but once again I don't really think it's a big stretch to be including Mm -hmm. non-binary and trans and gender non-conforming and other gender expansive identities in these ideals yeah so in fact I think a lot of um turfs or whatever if we're gonna call them that think that think that being more gender inclusive like detracts from the like marginalization of women or will make like cis women's issues less relevant but it actually makes them more broad and more expansive and has more people involved and at the end of the day I think my thesis here is that although gender is a social construction with little to no scientific backing, as Jules will talk about further, it's therefore fake 
However, the material impacts of our gendered society and the harm that it causes is very real. And any bills and policies that will create more gender-based harm are things that we need to look at and take very seriously. And I also think it's worth noting that um, the idea of a gender binary has actually been around for a much shorter time than a more expansive view of gender in a lot of indigenous cultures around the world. Um, historically, there was a much broader view of gender and um, not a gender binary, which was very much violently inflicted by colonization. Um, and so the idea that like being non-binary or trans is this like fad that young people are doing is just intrinsically false. In fact, having a gender binary being imposed is much closer to being like a fad in the huh. sense of that it hasn't been around for that long, actually, in the scheme of humanity. Yeah, I would just also add that like, and this is related, I think, to what you said about, you know, feminism feminism, Zoe, that these bills and other related developments are dangerous for cis people too. And like, I'm not saying that to be like, that's the only reason cis people should care about them, obviously. But like, do you really think that Republicans who are intent on punishing children for being gender non-conforming are going to target only trans people who don't like, quote unquote, conform to gender roles? Like their intent on policing gender in an incredibly rigid way, in a way that, as Zoe suggested, like old school feminists actually like would not fuck with. And like the logic of this movement doesn't stop with transness, like little tomboys who like dirt bikes, like little lesbians in the making, little boys who like playing with their sister's dolls or who wear nail polish or just like like other boys. Like all of that is gender nonconformity when you live under a strict heteropatriarchy. So just like we've seen that when they win abortion fights, they just move on to limit birth control. Like this fight is not going to start and end with trans kids. Trans kids are just the most vulnerable. They're the ones who get attacked first, but like this is coming for everyone outside the bounds of gendered heteronormality. And like, we're going to talk about the Texas trans anti-trans order and how it's related to the Florida don't say gay bill as it's called. And like a few other of these similar kinds of um, policies that are coming out right now because, and the reason is that these issues are all super bound up together, even if some, some turfs that's illegal now, but I use the word anyway, um, you know, are invested in not seeing it. I mean, turfs are a specific type. I just think that there needs to be a new name for them. Yeah. That's my hot take. Uh, I'm, I'm I like gatekeeping. it just being tea. Yeah, just, just tease. <laughs> I'm gatekeeping the term feminism and it doesn't include them. Hell yeah. Wow. Hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for the uh, enthusiasm. You're welcome. <laughs> yeah. So I think we're going to start with the order that Texas Governor Greg Abbott signed at the end of February. Um and it's worth noting, actually, that this isn't a bill that was passed through the legislature, but rather a letter that the governor sent to one of the agencies that's under the control of the state executive branch regarding how to fulfill their duties. So the letter was directed to the Texas State DFPS, which stands for the Department of Family and Protective Services. And that's equivalent basically to what's called CPS or Child Protective Services in a lot of other states, including New York, where you know I'm recording from. And the gist of what's going on in Texas is that essentially current state law dictates how DFPS is supposed to respond to child abuse. This letter tells DFPS that from now on, they should consider medical treatments for trans kids, quote unquote, abuse, and then respond to it how they would respond to any other form of child abuse. Um, and the people who are now considered uh, liable or who are considered liable include not just parents and healthcare providers, but also because this is again considered child abuse, any mandatory reporters who do not essentially out a child as trans to the state. And mandatory reporters, just for people who don't know, are adults in like certain positions of power, such as teachers, doctors, nurses, social workers, who are required to report instances of suspected abuse to authorities. Yeah, um, I just wanted to make a brain, a brave confession that I am a mandated reporter, um, which for actual legal reasons, I um, can't say my true thoughts on publicly. But what I will say 
is be gay, do crime in parentheses professional. <laughs> um, also, I, I don't work with kids and I don't plan to work on kids. I just had to do this training for my uh, social work job because some people at the agency work with kids. So mm-hmm. I'm not in a position where I would have to. Um, I also would have an issue if I was. Yeah. And so, yeah, so like this whole order turns on slotting trans-affirming care into these pre-existing legal categories of abuse. And like, you know, in a twisted way, it's actually like very clever in that it didn't require the passage of any new laws to take effect. And like, there is a reason for that, which is that last year, Abbott actually tried to get the legislature to pass a law that designated gender-affirming healthcare for trans kids as child abuse, and that bill did fail. Um, And like also worth noting is that the ACLU immediately filed against the order and Friday, which is the day that this comes out for non-Patreon listeners, which why aren't you on our Patreon, whatever, on Friday, the court, a court should be ruling about the legality of Abbott's move. So like we will know more sort of right as this episode drops. Um, Also worth noting that I fucking hate Greg Abbott. That's all. Enemy of the podcast. Enemy. Enemy of the podcast. Enemy of the people. Um, Yeah, I think most of our listeners are already aware of this, but I did just want to talk a little bit about the fact that there's no scientific or medical basis for this order. Um, So in this letter, Governor Abbott specifically referenced surgical procedures that minors are having, which is really just not something that's happening. Uh, To my knowledge, the youngest person to ever receive any type of gender-affirming surgery in the U.S. was 17 at the time, and there's nowhere in the U.S. where anyone younger than 16 is even considered eligible for surgery. Um, I don't necessarily know that that's how it should be, but that's how it is right now. Um, Much like abortion and any other care related to reproductive health, it's already extremely difficult to have any type of gender-affirming medical procedures as a minor if you're the one asking for them. Um, And just because of the political climate right now, I don't necessarily see this changing soon, but we should definitely not be going the other direction and making things harder for kids. Um, I mentioned reproductive health specifically because a big part of Abbott's supposed justification for this order is this specter of children becoming infertile or losing the ability to have kids, um, which can be a side effect of some gender-affirming care. Again, not that any kids are actually receiving this care, but whatever. But that's largely because of like a lack of studies and information being communicated by doctors to patients. Um, the solution is definitely not more secrecy and criminalization of medical procedures. Yeah. Um, can I just jump in real quick, Jules? I just wanted to yeah. point out that like what this bill specifically generally is like targeting is like basically bottom surgery is like what they're theorizing as being gender affirming care. But I think it's worth noting that just to our listeners who perhaps haven't thought of things this way, that like cis people get gender affirming care all the time, generally not minors, but like, for example, like, cis women getting boob jobs, that's gender affirming healthcare. Like if you get like a Brazilian butt lift, that's gender affirming healthcare, like chin transplant, that's gender affirming, like nose job, that's gender affirming. And so there's also this idea, I think that's worth noting that's inherent in these bills that gender affirming surgery is something that only trans people get, which is just not true. It's just that cis people don't think about the kind of healthcare they get as affirming their gender, even though it absolutely is. Yeah. That's yeah. my soapbox. No. Yeah. Also on that. So, um, I, I take spironolactone. I've been on it for a few years because I have high testosterone levels and I don't take it for like gender reasons. It's because that can like affect your health in other ways when you're someone with a uterus. Um, and so I've been on it for, for a few years, but it's something that, cause it's an androgen blocker. It's something that a lot of trans women take. Um, and so that's often like attacked in different ways, yeah. but a lot of like cis women or cis adjacent mm-hmm. or whatever the fuck take it for, um, like hormonal acne, like hair growth, um, having high testosterone can be like cause like worse cramps if you have uterus, all of these things. And then I saw this article come out that said spironolactone can 
somehow like help with COVID. And I was like, I feel like this is fake, but also I've been on it for a few years and I hope it's true. <laughs> um, but I feel like these it's medications, that, yeah. yeah. And I'm sure there's like other medications like this, right. That people take for all different reasons, yeah. but then it's seen as like bad or dangerous when it's taken specifically by trans people for gender affirmation. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I also, I guess it's just worth it to say, like, the only reason why I even mentioned that, like, yes, there are procedures that have risk is just, like, surgery does have risk in general, but it's, like, not more so specifically for trans people having surgery. So I, I do think it's important to point out that, like, cis people are having surgeries like this all the time and trans people are having surgeries that aren't seen as gender affirming all the time that are considered totally fine you get your appendix removed nobody's like oh let's see what greg abbott has gender affirming care yeah like wisdom (laughs) teeth removed like your whole mouth can get infected and it's like no that's fine Uh right and it's like you know that doesn't typically happen because we have a lot of like communication and procedures around that and you just Mm -hmm. go back to your doctor if that happens like yeah that's why I'm saying I think like adding secrecy around it is gonna make it riskier for sure definitely um I also just wanted to take a moment to specifically talk about how this order targets intersex kids as well. Um, There is a carve out in the letter that Abbott sent for quote unquote medically necessary surgeries related to gender. Um, So like I mentioned before, if a kid or teen is the one asking for gender affirming care, that's now supposedly bad and child abuse. But if a doctor or family wants to do surgery on an intersex child to make their body and sex characteristics appear more like quote unquote, normal or typical, that is allowed under this order. Um, And it's total bullshit that these procedures are called medically necessary because they're absolutely not. The only reason a gender affirming surgery is necessary is because the person having it wants it. And that's really the only basis that should be used to decide whether it's okay. Um, This right wing framework around who can receive gender affirming care is totally ideologically inconsistent because it's based on this made up idea of it being quote unquote necessary to do surgery on people's bodies if doctors have decided those bodies are out of the norm, but unnecessary and even possibly illegal if a doctor approves the surgery and it's something you actually want. Um, Not that that's like the main problem with this order, that it's ideologically inconsistent, but I do think it's just worth noting that it doesn't make medical sense. It doesn't make logical sense. Like there's no like consistent reasoning behind this. Um, And what that really means is this is more like political theater than anything else, which is not to say that it's not going to have real impacts. Um, Obviously, a lot of people are conflating low risk and no risk care, like puberty blockers, which again, have long been considered safe for cis kids with surgery or medical procedures that do have more possible side effects to them. Um, And we talked about this more in our episode on the slew of anti-trans bills last year. So you can go back to that for more on the medical specifics of puberty blockers. But this basically means that mandatory reporters will be forced to target any gender non-conforming kids, regardless of what medical care they're actually receiving. Um, Like Kellen was saying, this isn't like, there's not going to be like, pulling people's pants down to check what their genitals are like people are just going to assume kids are trans if they are gender non-conforming in any way um and i think like we've said and will say many times in this episode a lot of this is just an excuse to solidify republican donors and the base and get politicians in line around an issue and trans kids are being chosen as that issue simply because they're so vulnerable Um, And a lot of adults weirdly have a lot of feelings about them and want to make that kid's problem. So I guess on the note of adults having weird ideas about how to protect kids, I know we want to talk more about just CPS in general and the child welfare system. Yeah. Yeah. I also just wanted to mention that this conversation is really reminding me of when we talked about the Texas abortion ban, because it's once again, like making basically turning civilians or whatever you Mm -hmm. want to call them into cops that have to report. Right. So like mandated reporters, as Kellen said, are like teachers, nurses, social workers, like people who are often genuinely trying to help kids and not put them into the system. Yeah. Um, And it, it turns them into cops and 
yeah i was just thinking that that's like really abbott's fucking mo it's like let's make everyone a fucking cop or criminalize them they're called patriots no (laughs) (laughs) if you love your country you will okay anyway but yes i do want to talk more about child welfare systems so a lot of more radical social workers refer to this as the foster care industrial complex. As Kellen mentioned, they tend to be called something slightly different in every state. In Illinois, it's DCFS, which is Department of Child and Family Services. Um, Yeah, they just have all different names, but they all mean the same thing. It doesn't really matter. Um, And I want to get into more specifics, though, about about what that means. Also, just want to mention this is going to be pretty like heteronormative explanation. And that is because that is the way the system is built. And so it's hard to talk about it in a way that is not that um, Mm. because that just isn't how it's set up. So the child welfare system in the U S started really as a means to remove indigenous children from their families into boarding schools, which you've probably heard of. Um, They were essentially violently forced to assimilate into whiteness. And we can also look at the history where it, um, relates to like the lineage of slavery in the U.S. and how enslaved families were often separated. And of course, a more recent current example of separating families at the border. And these examples all speak to this ongoing devaluation of the relationship between BIPOC parents and their children. So there's a really large overlap between child welfare systems and the prison system, particularly when it comes to the surveillance of black and brown mothers. And I say mothers specifically because within these systems, the blame, the blame is placed almost entirely on mothers, whereas fathers are really not held accountable pretty much ever. And this extends to situations even of intimate partner violence, wherein mothers will be charged with a failure to protect their children. But fathers will not receive any charges. And in this case, we are assuming that the father is the abusive one. Um, And yeah, fathers aren't charged with failure to protect if they're like abusing their kids. We just blame women for not having been able to remove them or et cetera. And we also- I did very that. Yeah, it's very fucked up. I actually read this article- no, it was in a textbook I had to read for a class my first semester. And I like wrote a raging email to my professor being like, what the fuck did you make me read? Because it was like um, feminists focus too much on protecting like women in domestic violence and don't care about the kids. And like, here's how you should like take care of the kids. First of all, it was like such bullshit. I was like, no, actually feminists care about kids too. Thank you very much. Um, but I digress. So we also don't see fathers really ever charged with neglect. Um, even for fathers who just leave their families, but mothers can get neglect charges for so much as like napping while your child is home can be seen as neglect. And there's many ways in which black and brown communities are surveilled for these like often pretty minor and in fact, like things that normally occur in families, but as reasons to take their children away. And one of these, which is like particularly fucked up is called a shot spotter. If you don't know what this is, it's a sound picking up device. I don't know what that's called placed usually in black and brown neighborhoods and it picks up on the sound of gunshots and um, mothers then can be potentially charged for failure to protect if they live near where the gunshots are heard regardless of specific proximity or if they have like any relation to the reasoning for the gunshots it can be like someone you know got shot on your block and so like your kids are in a dangerous situation we're going to take them out of this neighborhood like things like that You can also be charged if you leave your children to be watched by someone whose children were already taken away. And this tends to be somewhat common because within surveilled neighborhoods, it continues to perpetuate more kids being taken from that community. And so um, think about, I don't know, this happened to me a lot, right? Like your parents would have like a neighbor watch you if they had to go run an errand or something. But if your neighbor's kids already got taken away for similar reasons and you live your kids with the neighbors, then your kids get taken away too. Um, And so it just creates the situation where a lot of kids are often removed from the same neighborhood, the same communities. It's not surprising then in the sense that 
a third of the prison population approximately is single mothers. And going back to what Kellen was saying in the beginning, this is already something that's affecting cis women, right? Because it's going to be many cis mothers that are punished for having trans children, particularly if they're trying to be affirming towards their trans children. Um, And so that's like a lot of who will end up facing the brunt of this, legally speaking, Um, as well, of course, the kids that will be potentially removed from their families. Something I think is really interesting is that there was a, and not surprising, there was a a blind study done within a CPS uh, office, whatever they're called, district, where the um, workers looked at cases without knowing the address, the names, or other information that potentially identifies racial identities. And usually you know that information when you're looking at these. And in that study, there was a dramatic decrease in the amount of black and brown children that were taken from their families because they didn't know they were black and brown. (sighs) This is a lot of information. I feel passionately about this. And that is because I will go to great lengths to know facts so that I can dunk on my enemies. (laughs) (laughs) And my enemies are adjacent social workers and Greg Abbott. (laughs) (laughs) Today, Um, there might be more. Oh, there's plenty more. Let me tell you. <laughs> Not an exhaustive list. <laughs> Not an exhaustive list. Um, but the system also really creates intergenerational trauma since when children are brought up in the fucked up foster care system, which also, speaking of TERFs, very misleading name because you don't receive a lot of care in foster care most of the time, but they grow up not really seeing an example of what parenthood looks like and not really knowing how to care for children, not because of their birth families the majority of the time, but because they were taken from them. And so it's actually more likely if you were taken from your parents that your kids will be taken from you because then you're seen as an unfit parent. So it just really continues to perpetuate and is very fucked up. Um, And then the last thing that I think is worth noting, um, because social work is often thought of as very in tandem with child welfare. um, So most social workers who work in child welfare have a BSW, which is a Bachelor's of Social Work. And the job options for that are very limited. Mainly you can either do case management, which in my opinion, as someone who's done it, it sucks. Um, And the highest paying job you can get is more child welfare. Sorry, is working in child welfare. Why is that the case? Uh, Well, how much money does the U.S. put into carceral systems? A lot. And so I've actually talked to social workers who now have an MSW are getting an MSW, but used to work in child care. Uh, Sorry, in child welfare. And I've asked them because I'm a toughie. I've said, I'm really curious how you worked in those systems when, in my opinion, it actually really goes against the code of ethics for social work to be doing these things. And what I've heard is that like the indoctrination into it is so strong and there's so much propaganda around it about how you're really helping kids and families. And it took a lot of like seeing the system fail families and harm families like over and over again to be like, oh, this is bullshit. Um, Not saying this to like defend the people that do this work, but I think it's worth mentioning the reason behind it um, because just like copaganda, like there's so much propaganda around the child welfare system. In summation, um, this is a lot of information, but really what I would like to say is that abolition includes the foster care system. Thank you very much. Absolutely. Yeah. Child protective services is really, really, really hard. Um, I'm not currently a mandated reporter, but I was for like 10 years um, for various education roles I've been in. And I just want to say that like, while I obviously never agree with this foster care industrial complex that Zoe so eloquently spoke about, I also have seen this system fail to protect youth who are being abused um, time and time again. Uh, When I lived in Portland, I literally witnessed a parent abusing their kid on the train on the way to school. And it, you know, it wasn't something like when there's nothing we can do for youth, there's it's frustrating to even have to make the call to CPS because A, as a mandated reporter, if something happens, then you can go to jail for not reporting something you saw. Um, So, like, teachers can be afraid of incarceration, which I'm sure we'll get into more later. Anyway, 
Um, I was also a legal guardian for a teen and um, she was kicked out of her home and abused intensely by her parents. Um, And we had to involve CPS at some point and she was staying at a group shelter and all of the CPS staff didn't believe her when she told them about the abuse. The types of questions they asked were like, are you sure that's really what happened? And other frustrating things that were harmful to this teen who had already been through so, so much. Anyways, all that to say, they can be really harmful to families. And even in situations where a child is trying to protect themselves from their family, they can just re-traumatize and isolate that child. So it's just a very, very, very flawed system. Yeah, no, that's a really good example. And like another fucked up aspect of it, because a lot of kids and teens who are actually in abusive households, um, which as I was talking about is a much smaller majority than the ones that are taken out of their homes, but um, smaller majority, a much smaller percentage, (laughs) but um, they often end up worse off and face further mental health, further mental health consequences for trying to seek help because the system is so re-traumatizing and often handles things very poorly um, or does nothing. Exactly. Okay, so we went on a little loop-de-loop. We're coming back to the Texas bill. Um, So, you know, we're going to talk about, like, some resistance and some – we're trying to get some good vibes going. Um, So this first piece isn't necessarily resistance, but a small bit of good news is that a week ago, a Texas judge blocked the state from investigating the parents of a trans teen over their gender-conforming treatments. However, the judge stopped short of preventing the state from looking into other reports about children receiving similar care. While it's not the full situation we would hope um, that the court would rule out all of these actions from Greg Abbott, it does set a good precedent that if this does go to the courts, trans youth will be protected from investigation. Obviously, this is only a small win um, because the amount of people who can actually go to court is extremely limited due to cost and time. And also, it's much more difficult for folks in a state like Texas with larger amounts of undocumented people. Like, obviously, they aren't going to go near the court system. And there's obviously a precedent of cops and ICE and whoever just not needing any reason to come for people to begin with. Um, So small, small win, but a win nonetheless. So was it the parents that brought that to court? Is that what happened? Okay, cool. Um, Yeah, I also just wanted to mention a few things for listeners who might be in Texas that can be, I mean, not even like broader resistance as much as just like immediate survival. Um, So if you yourself are a minor, do not have to talk to CPS. Um, So at least during this period of time, though, also, as we've been talking about, this might be a good general rule. um, It's not probably in your interest to talk to them. So you can just not do that. Um, Again, this whole mandatory reporting thing means that right now, anyone who works at your school might be mandated to report something that you tell them. So um, like I, for example, worked as like an administrative aide at a school and I still had to be a mandatory reporter, um, which I think a lot of times kids don't know because they're not told. And then they talk to someone who they think wouldn't be a mandatory reporter and it turns out they are. So just be careful with that right now. Um, The other thing for parents is that if CPS shows up to your door, you do not have to let them in. You can ask to reschedule and they have to offer you another time. And that will hopefully give you time to seek some legal support. Um, A couple organizations that are offering legal aid to families of trans youth right now include Lambda Legal and Equality Texas. Um, And then for folks who might not currently be in Texas, a couple other places that you can donate to and support right now. um, The Transgender Education Network of Texas, or TENT, is an organization that supports trans kids' schools and has already been working at the legislative level to protect trans kids. So that's a good place to support. Um, And then the Campaign for Southern Equality is running an emergency grant program right now for trans kids and their families. We need financial support in dealing with these attacks. So that's a great place to donate as well. Um, just I think as of yesterday or uh, Tuesday on the day we're recording this, um, the, the biggest children's hospital in Texas announced that they're going to stop providing gender affirming care, not because of medical reasons, but just because they're worried about lawsuits. So 
a lot of families are having to go out of state or seek other options that might be more expensive. And that's part of why um, that type of financial support is really important right now. Oh, it's such a clusterfuck. It really is. <laughs> in in slightly good news, um, right before Jules was speaking, they were like lovingly looking into the eyes of their cat for an extended <laughs> period of time, and I was like, "Wow, that looks so soothing over there." Well, that's like that's that's trans joy. Yeah, we're that's calling my it. my trans affirming care of the day. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Um, so I don't know what gender is, and that is beautiful. Yeah, See, she's, she's a great thing. <laughs> so we're going to switch away from Texas uh, for the moment to um, a, a bill happening in Florida. The Florida state legislature passed a bill on Tuesday, March 8th, that would ban discussion of LGBTQ identity identity in classrooms and force school authority figures to out their students to their parents. Labeled as the Don't Say Gay Bill by queer advocates amid nationwide uproar over its cruelty, the discrimination now heads to Governor Ron DeSantis, another enemy of the pod, who has already indicated his support. I don't think there's a governor who isn't an enemy of the pod. Well, for sure. Just putting it out there. But these ones especially, you're on our list. You're on our fucking list. Okay, so um, if he Branding signs- our enemies ASMR. Yeah, exactly. You're on our fucking list. <laughs> if he signs it into law as expected, the measure would go into effect on July 1st. As written, the bill, which is actually called the Parental Rights and Education Bill, which is so ridiculous. It. What does that even mean? You get to, you have a right in what your child learns in school. Cancel. A bunch of us just made like pursed lip, like mm-hmm, faces just I'm now. Like, you couldn't see it. my parents know what I was talking about? Yeah. School? Yeah. Oh my God. Thank God. Yeah. No, fuck. Fuck it all. Anyway. So this bill bans, quote, classroom instruction pertaining to sexual orientation or gender identity from taking place between kindergarten and third grade or, quote, in a manner that is not age-appropriate or developmentally appropriate for kids. It also requires schools to notify parents about any change in a person's mental, emotional, or physical well-being. Okay, so if you were a kid, me, and you started wearing overalls at age six because you couldn't bear the thought of wearing another dress and you made your dad give you a bowl cut in the kitchen, like, do you think these people would consider that a physical health change? Because screams. Screams baby gay. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, this hellish governor has been quoted as saying a bunch of fucked up shit that I don't want to repeat right now. But DeSantis's press secretary, Christina Pouchat, went a step further, claiming that the bill could more accurately be nicknamed the, quote, anti-grooming bill, referring to tactics used by child abusers to lure their victims. Um, She says, quote, if you're against the anti-grooming bill, you're probably a groomer or at least you don't denounce the grooming of four to eight year old children. Fuck that. In other words, the press secretary for governor uh, for Florida was not so subtly playing into the age old harmful adage that queer and trans people are inherently associated with pedophilia. Super fucked up. Obviously, this received a lot of backlash from queer advocacy groups like GLAAD and the Trevor Project, particularly as it relates to the mental health of trans and queer youth. Mental health among young queer and trans folks is typically pretty low. Um, But as friend of the pod and incredible trans icon Anna Marie has said on her TikTok, she's famous on TikTok now, um, That improves drastically if that young person has one adult who accepts and loves them for who they are. So Mm -hmm. we as adults have an opportunity to be that for young people. And so I think it's really important that whenever you're engaging with youth to like talk openly about queerness and all of that. But do not worry, my queer BBs. Are there straight people who listen to the pod? Like, hi, thank you for your allyship. But also, (laughs) are you sure you're straight? Yeah, like who are you? But <laughs> we love you. it. We love it though. We do. <laughs> thank we you, for, thank you your for being here time. on this journey. Yes. To discovering yourself, hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, the kids are all right. Um, on Thursday, March 3rd, thousands of teens across the state walked out of classrooms against this heinous piece of legislation. 
while these were all student-led, um, and there are incredibly incredible stories all over the internet about students sticking up for each other, many teachers were enthusiastically in support of teens doing this work as well. Um, and in a small but beautiful act of resistance, queer artist Leo Herrera wrote this fun response to this bill. Don't say gay gives me church giggles. They're still trying to get rid of us. When will they understand our queerness floats to the top like cream and explodes when it's buried? They can draft their bills, ban our books and social media, wipe the cream pie off Anita Bryant's face, clear their priest grinder history, but it's too late. Queerness can't be contained because it is the container. The hinges on Pandora's box and the rub marks on Aladdin's lamp. The sea glass their child already picked up while they shielded their eyes from our sun and turned their back on our ocean. Volatile, elemental, sacred, everywhere, always. I love that. Thank you for sharing that, Laura. Yeah. So the news in Texas and Florida has garnered a lot of attention, but um, unfortunately they are not the only states where these kinds of bills and policies are becoming law or becoming official practice. Um, um, yeah, I just wanted to say, unfortunately, in terms of anti-trans healthcare bills, there are at least 24 other bills being considered in various states right now that would be similar. And there are 34 bills being considered that would change what schools are allowed to say about LGBTQ identity. Um, and the ACLU has a good tracker that's updated weekly that we can link to so you can kind of check to see what fights might be coming up in your area. Yeah, I wanted to talk briefly about a couple of other places, specifically Idaho and Alabama, um, which are examples of places where seeking or providing gender affirming health care for trans kids is being criminalized. So in Alabama, the state Senate has passed and the state House of Representatives is now considering a bill that would, um, according to NBC News, quote, make it a felony publishable pun punishable by up to 10 years in prison for a doctor to prescribe puberty blockers or hormones or prefer perform surgery to aid in the gender transition of people 18 years old or younger. So this bill targets healthcare providers specifically. Um, and in terms of Idaho, there are two bills I wanted to talk about. The first bill is similar to the Florida Don't Say Gay bill. Um, unfortunately, this Idaho bill actually has an extremely cool name, which is House Bill 666. Um, I personally believe that House Bill 666 is a name that should be reserved exclusively for like really sick shit, like a law that like makes it legal to throw rocks at a Tesla if it's parked in a rich person's driveway. Yes. Um, unfortunately, yeah. that's that's not what this is about. Uh, this is this goth culture appropriation. <laughs> yeah, this bill would make it illegal for libraries and schools and other institutions to distribute material that is, quote, harmful to minors. Um, but of course, it doesn't specify what that means so like naturally queer literature is on the menu um and the penalties that are currently proposed um are a fine of up to a thousand dollars and up to a year in jail for people who are convicted the second idaho bill i wanted to talk about is similar to the alabama bill um, it passed the Idaho State House on Tuesday and is now under consideration in the state Senate. This bill makes providing gender affirming care a felony, which is punishable by, in the language of the bill itself, qu imprisonment, quote, in the state prison for a term of not more than life, end quote, which like means life imprisonment. So fucked um, up. Yeah. It's also worth noting that the bill is actually an amendment to an existing bill or an existing law, and that law banned FGM or female genital mutilation, as it's called, which um, is a practice of removing all or part of the exterior genitalia of people with vaginas, and which is generally associated with attempts to control the sexuality and sexual pleasure of the victim. So it's, a, you know, a terrible practice. Um, and so I just wanted to highlight, like, how fucked up it is that gender affirming treatment for kids, which, like, by the way, as Jules established, generally actually doesn't involve surgeries, um, 
is being placed legislatively alongside FGM. And it suggests essentially that these are equivalent practices while we know, of course, that like one is rooted in like deep gender depression for the recipient and one is liberatory and affirming for the person on the receiving end. Um, So it's just absolutely disgusting that like not only is this bill being passed, but that it's being passed as an amendment to this existing law. Um, And I also- Once again- I was going to say, once again, Republicans don't know what consent means. Like one is consensual by choice. One is uh, forced. Yeah. And I just I just also wanted to note that there's a thing going around on Twitter about the Idaho bill that suggests that it criminalizes moving out of the state to get gender affirming health care for trans kids. Um, But that actually doesn't seem to be true. It is in the existing law, illegal to move out of the state to have your child undergo FGM, but that same provision actually isn't extended to gender affirming healthcare for trans kids. And like, obviously that's a good thing. Um, And it might also be a recognition of the reality that that would actually require interstate extradition, which, you know, means that like, for example, the authorities in Massachusetts would have to be willing to extradite parents who moved there from Idaho back to Idaho for the quote unquote crime of helping their child get like hormone therapy. And like, realistically, a lot of states that people would move to for those purposes would be unlikely to engage in that kind of extradition that's required to send parents back to a place that would jail them for just taking care of their trans kids. And like, this reminds me, if you'll excuse the slight digression, of like how fugitive slave laws used to work. They required that the state to which an enslaved person fled actually be willing to cooperate with the slave state they came from and actually send them back. And like this created a lot of internal national discord. And the issue like wasn't actually really resolved until 1850 when the Fugitive Slave Act was strengthened and the federal government like itself stepped in to enforce these interstate extradition requirements. And like as these laws continue to make their way through state governments, I do wonder whether there'll be states that increasingly become like safe havens for trans kids and their families. But of course, that requires that those families are actually able to afford to leave places like Texas and Idaho. Yeah. Anyway, that's it for our rundown of, of the laws and and other sort of um, legal things happening. Yes. Uh, as Jules established, there's unfortunately a lot more going on. Yeah. And thank you to our doctor of history, Bragg, for that historical. <laughs> Were you just tipping a Blinken's oh, yeah. hat? I was no, like, I was, I did a little gesture that was like touching my crown. Oh, mm. okay. I was like, mm. I just Very was nice. like, yes, a Blinken hat. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Obviously, we don't stand a Blinken. I'm just saying. Right, right. He's a the least bad president, but stand all presidents hat, are bad. Though. Right. Have a good hat. Yeah. We also stand myself. Exactly. I was going to say sexy Abraham Lincoln. Sexy Abraham Lincoln. Absolutely. One of the best <laughs> Halloween costumes of all time. And so I, I just was like, but I, the crown that makes, makes sense. sense. I mean, we also don't stand monarchs, but you know what? We don't stand very much on this podcast. We have a lot of enemies. <laughs> we have a lot of enemies. <laughs> um, yeah, I thought after all of this, that it would be good to talk about the mental health ramifications of transphobia and homophobia. Um, and I know this has been mentioned a little bit about different um, outcomes, but this past weekend I attended a conference for feminist mental health practitioners and researchers, and I got to learn about a lot of new related research to gender and mental health. So I thought it'd be helpful to share some of this. Um, Some of it is not actually published yet, but it will be. Um, So anyway, brag. (laughs) brag i'm cutting edge um (laughs) (laughs) but lucky our listeners because then they're on the cutting edge too it's true i know i'm like i hope these researchers are flattered also they don't have the podcast is this probably the podcast podcast. (laughs) who knows if you're listening thank you for your work (laughs) if you're listening thank you um so one thing which this is not super old but more well-established research is that um, attempted suicides greatly decrease by as much as 50 to 70% when 
um, chosen names, pronouns, and like access to spaces such as bathrooms, um, affirming spaces are available. And so, I mean, just from like a mental health standpoint, like trans affirming care is suicide prevention. And I think that's very important to understand. Yeah. Um, but then more about, there's like three specific studies that, um, I'm just going to share a little synopsis of, cause I think they were all like very important and like, uh, pretty new information. So one of the studies I learned about looked at political stressors as a factor in mental health. Um, traditionally, depending on the field, um, some mental health people, more like psychologists that are more individualistic, um, kind of had this idea that like politics should be like separate from therapeutic practices. Um, other fields like social work, it's always been like part of the work, but anyway, so this is something that people actually only really started researching after the 2016 election when it became clear how much that was affecting people's mental health. Even though like, of course, political stressors have existed for much longer, especially for marginalized people. But ever since 2016, the APA, the American Psychological Association, has been asking people how in their survey, how much political stressors affect their mental health. And every year since 2016, this number has gone up. Um, And the harm created by these bills and policies that we're talking about, and even bills that are proposed and don't actually go into practice, like the one Laura mentioned um, in Texas can still cause, not the current one in Texas, the previous one, or that Kellen mentioned, sorry. Um, but it can cause lasting disempowerment and trauma symptoms. And the reason that this is present, even if it doesn't pass, is that the idea that these things could come into law and that this is what people in power want, especially when you're a kid and don't understand that power is really fucked up, um, especially in the U.S. um, Yeah, it causes like lasting symptoms. And particularly for these bills that affect queer and trans children, adolescent, it can affect their development. And um, this is because these are ages when developmentally people are really meant to be social and learn how to form bonds with other people and differentiate from their family. And like, you're really exploring your own identity. Like Laura mentioned that as a child is when they start being like, I want a bowl cut and to wear overalls. And like, it's just when kids are learning to like explore who they are. But so if you're unable to do that and like discover who you are, because of these oppressive things and being worried about the consequences, it can really cause lasting harm and inhibit development because it often leads to self-isolation and um, like repressive behaviors. And so um, people don't necessarily like queer and trans youth don't necessarily have that same development because of that. And that's very important for like the rest of your life. Like that's why people always talk about their childhood. It's because it's very formative years for you. Um, So anyway, the second study that I wanted to talk about looked at um, how like self-compassion is a form of resilience for trans and gender non-conforming people specifically. So for transgender non-conforming people, they are four times more likely to experience mental illness. And of course, this has nothing to do with being trans or gender non-conforming on the face of it, but has everything to do with oppression and stigma and these policies we're talking about. And so one way to combat that is finding universality, which is, I'm trying to make this as like not clinical as possible. Universality is a clinical term that's really important to group work, which is something that um, I focus on. And it essentially means like when you share space with people who have similar experience and identities, you discover that you're not alone and you feel these universal feelings with the people you're around that like you feel more understood and you realize you're not alone in this. And again, it's particularly important for children and adolescents because um, they really might not know other queer or trans folks, at least not who are out. Um, Statistically speaking, they do know other people who will be, as I'm sure we all experienced with people we knew in childhood. But um. (laughs) Shout out to the gays I hung out with before we knew we were gay. Exactly. So they probably do know other people, but they don't know it yet. And there isn't um, representation, especially when it's being suppressed in this way. And then the last study I wanted to talk about, which I think is... um, a little more uplifting than those. I think this is super interesting. Um, It looks at the benefits of using inclusive language in therapeutic spaces. And I mean, I think this is really like 
translatable to any space. I don't think it has to be a therapeutic space. That's just what the study was, but it looked at the use of inclusive language versus the use of like heteronormative, very binary language and found that both cis, and this study was specifically about um, gender inclusion. There was like previously a very similar study about sexuality inclusion. Um, So both cis and trans and gender nonconforming folks preferred the use of inclusive language. And there was actually no statistical significance to those preferences. And, but there was a significant difference in how much trans and gender nonconforming folks said they would not go to the therapists that were using exclusive language versus inclusive language. I also just want to be clear. These people weren't being forced to go to these therapists. They were reading like a, mm-hmm. um, transcription of a made up session, um, mm-hmm of this. So I just want to be clear, trans people were not being like sent to fucked up therapists. (laughs) Wanted to be clear about how this was done. Um, But I think part of why this is so significant is that people often talk about how like sharing pronouns or being too politically correct is like alienating to cishet people, whatever, who cares? But this is something that people talk about. And when in fact, like people of all gender identities actually prefer or the people who didn't prefer just didn't really notice the difference. Yeah. And none of the participants in the survey, and it was almost 200 people, I believe none of them expressed disliking the inclusive language or having any like adverse effect. They just either didn't notice or preferred inclusive language. Um, So basically all around gender inclusivity is very good for mental health. We love it. And several of these studies showed how the sense of universality I talked about, or like community, is one of the best ways to combat the harm of marginalization. And because it also promotes like pride and gender euphoria in people's identities when they have access to these spaces. And I think there's, when there is so much political attention around these things, it can be hard to like focus on the positive aspects because it can feel very like gloom and doom for lack of a better word. But of course there are many positive aspects to being queer, being trans, being not fucking cishet people. We love it. We love and it. having this sense of pride and community that comes from that. And so I thought it would be like nice little uplifting. No, we could talk about some of the like positive aspects that we love about our identities. Hell yes. It's going to be, it's a great way to end. Um, Thank you. <laughs> this is my group therapy session. Thank you for coming. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, yeah, so here are some things that are bringing me queer joy currently. I'm dating two non-binary babes. Woohoo, we love to see it. Ah, we really do. I was dating three, but I realized it was too much for my busy ass. If you're listening, <laughs> it's not about you. Thanks for being here. Anyway. That's fair, though. It's it's time-consuming, honestly. It was <laughs> – I – yeah. Anyways, it's, it really is just a joy to be able to uh, enjoy and absorb extremely cool and powerful and artistic – babies um i feel really lucky and happy to be able to experience a lot of trans and queer joy in romantic ways um i got to work on this episode while listening to a playlist that one person i'm seeing made for me and it helped keep Mm. like the bad anti-trans and anti-queer vibes at bay wow playlists are such a good idea laura's love language for those who don't know send laura a playlist (laughs) (laughs) although they're currently at their quota they no. just said they were too busy to date anyone Currently else. at their quota. I mean, send me the that. playlist. We'll see how I feel. I mean, like, who knows, honestly. Just saying, we have been saying for months to email us if you want to date Laura. True. And maybe you've That's missed so your true. chance now. Should have emailed That's true. Me. Wow, roasted. Send a playlist. We'll analyze and get back to you. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um. Also, of course, I have incredible trans and queer friends like everyone on this pod and pretty much most people who are close in my life. And that just like fills me with immense happiness. And how beautiful is it that we get to talk about politics and literally whatever we want with a 100% MB and queer pod? I love y'all so fucking much. Yes. Heart agree. Podcast love. I'm making a heart with my hands for the people. Also, and I just made a bunch of kissing noises if it wasn't clear what that sound was. Not sure how well that translates. (laughs) Yes. And like, I love how queer our discord is too. Like people are always just like, yeah, like here's the like I went on this date. It was blah, blah, blah. Like, here's all my cats. Um, I'm I'm, you know, 
buying a house as a cooperative. Like, it's fucking amazing. We love it. Um, also, I love talking, taking in all queer media, books, music, TV, film, art, etc. I know I've playlists talk- from crushes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I know we've talked about this before, but it is something that has been hyper present in my life lately. Um, my incredible downstairs neighbor and I basically started a queer library and share queer literature with each other. Also, my booze and other people in my life are always sharing queer content with me. And it's such a beautiful thing to be able to share with one another. Um, my favorite things I've read lately are Bluebird by C.L. Pierlo and Plain Bad Heroines by Emily Danforth. I just want to say I read Plain Bad Heroines last year and I loved it. It's very spooky, very queer vibes. And like one of the protagonists literally like is Kristen Stewart. Like I just like always imagined Kristen Stewart when I was like visual. You know what? Like that was like who was it? Anyway. No, I love that you said this because I have been feeling that the whole time, but I didn't have anyone to talk to about it yet. So I'm just like, yeah. so funny. (laughs) (laughs) We love Case Stew. Um, I also have been watching queer TV and movies all the time, um, of course, and the queer movies that I've seen of late that I really, really enjoyed are Watermelon Woman and Pride. And of course, like most people, I've watched all of Euphoria. Um, and, you know, I feel like we could probably do an entire Patreon episode about Euphoria because there's so much to get into with um, how it's made, like the treatment of the actors the actual queer and trans storylines and yeah there's just a lot there so well maybe that's just a little teaser for you Ooh, i have to finish season two i watched all of season one but i like it's on my list don't worry okay good. um <laughs> oh no i love well whatever complicated i was addicted to season one complicated love <laughs> asterisk yeah it's- exactly exactly <laughs> um but yeah definitely agree with um queer media being helpful also okay i haven't read this book yet it was just recommended to me but by someone i really trust so i feel confident recommending it it's called manhunt and what i understand uh, yes I, okay I, you I know so why don't, okay yeah. you should explain it then because i haven't actually it's, read it <laughs> yeah so it's it's basically about it's by this amazing trans woman who writes um a lot of like body horror stuff her name's gretchen felker martin um also a great twitter follow But basically, so this is her first uh, novel, I think. And it's about a world where everyone with a certain amount of testosterone in their system turns into zombies. And so it's the apocalypse and there's no more like estrogen and T blockers because, you know, society has collapsed. So there are these mostly trans women called manhunters who go around killing the zombie men and cutting off their balls and eating them because that's like the only source of estrogen, which oh is really interesting because like who I didn't know that would be the best source of estrogen <laughs> in an apocalypse, but apparently it would be. Oh um, but it's really great. It's like horror and um, like it's a, it's a bit gory, but it's also just very like all the queer and trans romance um, and like organizing, fighting, turfs vibes. Um, I- it's great. Since we're talking about queer shit, um, just to, to throw in another book recommendation, the Gideon the Ninth and the, the sequels for it are like so good. I haven't read the third one, which came out a few months ago, I think, but it's so fucking good. It's like gay, like sci-fi horror in space. Um, and uh, was recommended to me by someone that I had a massive crush on who quote unquote isn't gay. Okay, <laughs> why are you reading this book then? Anyway, love it. Highly recommend it. I think everyone's eyes are louder than anything else right now. I'm so sorry you all can't see it. Because <laughs> we know who it is. <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah, Manhunt is like on my list now that it's been recommended. And now that Jules seconded the recommendation, I'm like, Based on these two sources, I know it will be good. Um, But something else lately for me has been like meeting other people focused on providing gender affirming like therapeutic spaces, um, which is something that's very important to like me and what I'm doing in grad school. Thank you so much, Pisces. 
But yeah, as I mentioned, when I was discussing CPS, there's plenty of social workers that I'm not politically aligned with that I'm like, what the fuck are you doing? But I've also been meeting a lot of people who are queer and radical and want to do similar work, which makes me feel just like very good and affirmed. And particularly at the conference I mentioned, I started to be and I'm continuing to be involved with like a queer caucus of that like feminist mental health uh, association thing thing this is my professionalism I like the association thing but um (laughs) it's like a really great space and um also a lot of the people that are like doing this research I'm talking about which I think just makes me feel good about like the future of this field that this these studies really haven't exist but like they're starting to and I I don't know I think even like you know things like that are like very important um But yeah, and also, as Laura said, just like basically all of my friends, I can literally think of one straight friend I have. He listens to the pod. You know who you are. You're, um, you you know, the special one, whatever. (laughs) (laughs) I like tell him he's my token straight friend regularly. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, it's kind of funny because actually in some of my job interviews for like working at places that provide gender affirming care, they would ask in interviews if I like had any experience with um, like LGBTQ plus folks. Oh my God. And I was just like, yeah, like literally everyone I know <laughs> professionally also. Yes. Like in every realm of my life. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Love that. Okay. So one thing that I wanted to mention that has been bringing me a lot of trans joy lately is I've been working on a trans horror movie syllabus. Um, for a season of the bitch movie screening series that we're going to be doing um hopefully starting next month so we're going to have some more details soon in discord but um we're probably going to have like a a suggested higher patreon tier um for folks who want to join but also like if you're in the discord you will be part of like the you will get the info um so you can decide if you want to do it or not um so yeah that's you know if you want to get the info about that really the easiest way is to join our discord by going to patreon.com slash season of the bitch and signing up um and we're also going to be hopefully like starting up back up um reading groups soon and having some other events through there um you can also follow us on twitter and instagram at season of the b um you can email us season of the b at gmail.com visit our website season of the b.com and rate review subscribe on itunes spotify wherever you're listening to us give us five stars please because we love you and Plus, you don't give it. us five stars, in which case, enemy of the pod. Enemy of so the pod. True. So then true. Then we want to talk legacy. about you. <laughs> <laughs> we'll cancel you publicly. In the same breath as Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but, it's kind of powerful, yeah. though. <laughs> um, thanks so much for listening. It's it's nice to have this, this little group of queer yeah. trans people to discuss these things with yeah love y'all love Love y'all love you Bye. bye